This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. Again, this is Matt Martin. Welcome to our next East Town Hall debate. Uh, We're really excited about today's topic. It's laparoscopic lavage for perforated diverticulitis. Uh, Dave Morris is going to be the primary mediator and moderator for this session. Uh, Before I turn it over to him, we just wanted to uh, review lap lavage and and what we're talking about. And we've got a quick video clip here, which uh, should be coming up on your screen. And so this is what we're talking about, a laparoscopic exploration for diverticulitis. In this video, you see uh, turbid fluid and pus in the pelvis, so this would be a Hinchy 3. Uh, this then shows some, some blunt lysis of adhesions, uh, which, is, which is one of the technical points that I'm sure we'll be talking about, whether you should do this or shouldn't do this. And, and in this video, they've discovered a perforation, as you see, and actually they've decided to suture this close, which again is a point of contention technically. Um, but this would compromise a basic laparoscopic lavage of essentially suctioning out the fluid, uh, brief exploration. Uh, you can, with or without a primary repair for perforation has been discovered, and then a large volume lavage, as you can see they're doing here until you have uh, essentially cleared the purulence uh, or feculent spillage, uh, and then leaving drains in the abdominal cavity. So we just wanted to give you a quick introduction to that is what we're talking about when we're talking about a laparoscopic lavage. Uh, We've got a great uh, couple uh, teams who are going to debate each other on this topic today, and there's been some very controversial literature. So with that, I will turn it over to Dave Morris. All right. Thanks, Matt, and uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, Let's do our introductions first. We've got a couple of uh, ringers assembled on our different teams here, so we'll go ahead and uh, have you introduce yourself. Why don't we start first with the pro uh, debate. The lap lavage is a great new tool. Uh, why don't we start first with Dr. Jones. Would you please please introduce yourself? Thanks, Dave. This is Christian Jones. I'm an acute care surgeon at Johns Hopkins. I have the pleasure of uh, serving with Dr. Schuster uh, on the East uh, Publications and Literature Review section and had the uh, honor of developing the literature review that included one of these first um, meta-analyses for laparoscopic lavage and diverticulitis. All right. Thanks, Christian. It's great to have you with us. Uh, next, uh, Dr. Brombat, would you introduce yourself as well? Yeah. Uh, my name is Tejal Brombat. I'm here at uh, Boston University School of Medicine. Um, I'm actually a, a representative member of the um, Eastern Association for the Surgery Traumas uh, Education Committee, Online Education Committee, working with uh, Dave and Matt. Awesome. Now, uh, arguing the anti-side or the con-side, uh, which we've titled the lap lavage is full of stool side of this argument, we have uh, also a couple of ringers. Uh, Dr. Bernard, would you please introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, thanks, Dave. It's, it's Andrew Bernard. I'm a faculty member at the University of Kentucky in trauma and acute care surgery. It's been my privilege to serve as the recorder or program chairman, uh, now called the uh, chair of the annual scientific assembly section for East for these uh, three years. So I'll be seeing everybody 
next week in Hollywood, Florida. Fantastic. And finally, uh, Dr. Schuster, would you please tell us about yourself? Hi, uh, Kevin Schuster. I'm a acute care surgeon at uh, Yale. I am the chair of the publications division. I'm the lame duck chair, as Matt put it, of the publications division of East. All right. Well, I anticipate a great discussion today, and uh, welcome to all who are joining us online as well. Um, first off, uh, if you look at your screens, we've got a, an audience poll here. So everyone participating, if you wouldn't mind uh, looking at your, at your screen and take a look at these questions. Uh, first, uh, regarding laparoscopic lavage for perforated diverticulitis, uh, my current practice is which one of the following? Uh, please make a selection, and then as soon as we have those all tallied, we'll, uh, we'll let you know what everybody's thinking on, online. Uh, first off, uh, let's talk about the ground rules of the debate. Um, we're going to have uh, the pro side go first with uh, some time for rebuttal. We will intersperse some audience questions throughout the discussion today, and um, hopefully at the very end of our discussion have time for some audience questions, which you can enter in on your, uh, on your screen there uh, using the chat function. So to start, uh, Christian, I'm going to go with you first. If, if you wouldn't mind... Uh, talking about the meta-analysis that you already mentioned that was included in the East Literature Review and uh, talking about how you think it uh, supports the technique and why uh, it should be used in, in the uh, acute care surgeon's armamentarium. So, so, Dave, real quick before we do that, uh, we'll just just look at the results of the question. Oh, so okay. it, looks like, it looks like we're about a third, a third, a third. I perform lavage as a third, have not done it, but would use it as a third, and do not perform it as about a third. Okay, very interesting. All right, Christian, it's up to you. Thanks very much, Dave. Uh, yeah, so laparoscopic lavage as a general tool for diverticulitis, we've really been talking about for a few years now, and there's been some back and forth. There's been a lot of discussion at uh, different conferences. There's been a lot of papers that have positions, and just within the last few years, there have started to be a couple of randomized controlled trials. So this first uh, a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, the one that's in our November East Literature Review, is entitled Laparoscopic Lavage is Superior to Colon Resection for Perforated Purulent Diverticulitis, a meta-analysis. This is, in fact, a meta-analysis done by uh, the Scandinavian research group. Uh, the particular authors in this one are from Sweden and Denmark. Uh, but, of course, they do an international search of randomized controlled trials suitable for analysis and meta-analysis. They put together a beautifully designed, by the books, PRISMA and grade-based systematic review and meta-analysis. Quite frankly, I am, am hesitant to find any problem with their actual data analysis or uh, study design. Some of their interpretations, I'm sure, are some of the things that we'll be discussing, as well as some of the comparisons with other studies that have been done. But what they found was three randomized controlled trials that brought up to uh, a total of 358 patients that had diverticulitis. 185 of them underwent a laparoscopic lavage for their diverticulitis. 173, so just slightly under 50%, either got a Hartman's procedure or a colon resection with anastomosis. Um, their major outcome that they uh, presented was the reoperation rate within 12 months. So again, this could be the reoperation rate 
uh, from a colostomy takedown if that was done within the first year uh, after giving the patient a colostomy or a, a, a reoperation for a complication uh, or even a recurrent diverticulitis. They found that there was a statistically significant difference between the groups, and specifically there was an increased rate of reoperation within 12 months uh, for patients who got a colon resection, whether it was reanastomosed or uh, brought up as an ostomy. They're unable to uh, specifically break down whether the patients who ended up getting a reoperation got it just as a planned colostomy takedown or whether they had some complication. Um, obviously, that is a, a bit of a confounding factor here. Now, again, as the systematic review uh, process would go, this is meticulous. This is beautifully done. Uh, I think some of the things that you'll hear my colleagues talk about is the idea of uh, potential failures, of having complications, and of having an earlier reoperation rate, uh, uh, sorry, an, a higher early reoperation rate. Um, so we can talk a little bit about that. My personal uh, opinion about this paper is, again, obviously it's very well done. The problem, of course, is that there are only three meta-analysis, uh, sorry, randomized controlled trials included in the meta-analysis, and that's not because they didn't do a thorough search. That's not because uh, of any other factor uh, attributed to the authors of this meta-analysis. It's because there are only three randomized controlled trials using uh, laparoscopic lavage. But those are coming out. That This is a relatively new procedure. I'm perfectly willing to admit that uh, there has not been the rigorous gathering of data that there was in, uh, uh, in some of our earlier introductions of uh, procedures uh, that were done laparoscopically uh, because people are comfortable with this, because this is something that can be useful to our patients. And even if patients are going to go on to need a more formal resection at some point in the future, this can be an excellent bridge, and this can be something that gets them out of the hospital until they're ready to undergo an elective procedure should they need that. Frankly, I have the greatest respect for Dr. Bernard and Dr. Schuster. Um, they're wonderful surgeons. They have great experience. They don't look nearly as old in person as they do on their East Profile pictures. Uh, and uh, I'm, you know, disappointed that uh, they just feel that uh, their experience uh, isn't uh, able to use this wonderful new tool. <laughs> okay, great. Well, let's turn it over now to uh, Kevin for uh, the other side of the coin. Why should lap lavage not be performed? Uh, well, thanks, uh, Dave and uh, Matt, for inviting me back after the last uh, C-spine debate. Um, I think you probably guys probably want an easy target for Christian and Tajal because he's one. <laughs> um, I'm slightly biased uh, in this uh, argument, um, but these debates are definitely a great addition to the East Online uh, Education section, um, especially getting the interactive format going with the audience and uh, having them chime in with uh, uh, their opinions. I think it's a great uh, addition. Um, so I'll start uh, by saying that I'm really disappointed since uh, that picture was taken many years ago. I'm <laughs> even older now, so that's kind of scary. But uh, my personal assessment of the primary paper we're discussing, it's been said that there are lies, there are damn lies, there are p-values, and then there are meta-analyses um, by some very famous surgeons. And this paper is a meta-analysis of a grand total, as Christian pointed out, three total studies. 
And as he also pointed out, I'd like to reiterate that the only paper that showed basically equivalence, not uh, an improvement based on laparoscopic lavage, was by the same authors that wrote this uh, meta-analysis. Uh, the remaining two studies, one was stopped early because the Data Safety and Monitoring Board felt that there was too high of reoperation rate in the laparoscopic arm of the study. And then the other, and the third uh, trial that they included, other than their own study, concluded that quote the use of laparoscopic lavage compared with primary section did not reduce the rate of severe postoperative complications, and led to worse outcomes in secondary endpoints. So there were multiple uh, issues with how they took a study that, or three studies that only one of which even showed equivalence and came up with improvement uh, based on uh, their assessment. So they did have some supplemental material that was missing, which I thought was interesting, or at least I wasn't able to find it, um, looking at the heterogeneity and uh, the um, random effects models from the meta-analysis, which were uh, supposedly online, but I couldn't quite honestly find them. But I sort of wonder about them uh, because I suspect there would be a lot of heterogeneity in these trials that uh, statistical heterogeneity on top of the fact that the trials used various out, uh, outcomes measures, some were varied attention, intention to treat and analysis of the data, others were straight intention to treat. And so a lot of differences, it's hard to combine uh, multiple studies that were uh, quite honestly significantly different. Um, all the studies were assessed, interestingly enough, uh, as being relatively low risk for bias, which is kind of interesting since surgical studies uh, generally or rarely assesses low risk for bias. These studies, all of the ones that reported it, just about all of them had a large proportion of patients that were uh, admitted to the particular hospitals and not enrolled in the studies. So you sort of wonder about a significant selection bias that they just didn't have data on. And as Christian pointed out, the other part, the colostomy takedowns, which essentially are routine part of the care of the patient were considered as extra interventions, and one could argue whether that's an appropriate uh, way to measure the data. Um, I'd like to make a couple key points about the studies that they included, because I'm, again, not convinced that you can even meta-analyze these studies. Uh, the ladies' trial was the first one, and that was divided into two, just to remind everybody how that trial went. It was a two-to-one-to-one -to -one, um, ratio of enrollment, and uh, the patients were, for every two that got laparoscopic lavage, one was a standard Hartman's procedure and one was what I'll talk about in a second, that was a primary anastomosis and maybe the best uh, option. Um, the Again, the DSMB stopped this trial early because of the high rate of intervention in the laparoscopic arm. And if you look at the data in the end, 20% of the lavage patients recurred uh, with recurrent diverticulitis within a year compared to only one in the uh, resection group. And that's not surprising since what we know from long-term data that when you do a, an elective resection for diverticulitis, recurrence rates are at most 5 to 10% over a long period of time compared to 20% over a year, which is um, unusual that you would think that that's a good uh, outcome. And the Scandiv trial, which was published in JAMA, um, they had multiple problems with the uh, laparoscopic lavage group. There was secondary peritonitis that was higher. Reoperation rate was higher. Reoperation rate, if you isolate just to the index admission, was higher. 
intra-abdominal abscess on the Gnosticus who was significant, was on the borderline in terms of fire. And again, as they concluded, it was that the uh, laparoscopic lavage uh, has higher or has higher rates of um, second poor secondary outcomes. Another interesting thing in their trial, they had I think about six colon cancers, and only three of them were detected uh, at the initial operation. So they missed uh, half of uh, the colon cancers in the uh, lavage group that were discovered later on colonoscopy or reoperation. And then finally, you get to their trial, which the, the author's trial that is. Interestingly, they published it both in the Annals of Surgery and in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And, and it's a, I wish I could uh, pull off that trick of publishing the same trial in two uh, high-impact factor journals. But this was the smallest of uh, three studies with 40 in a group. And essentially, there were no differences uh, between the groups. And so they said that you know, you're getting a sort of a, a lesser operation. Um, you got out, patients did get out of the hospital sooner. The length of stay was slightly shorter. Um, in the uh, laparoscopic group, but that was the uh, focus of their outcome data, and there was not a huge, there certainly was no huge difference in, or any difference in uh, complications or reintervention. So I think all in all, when you combine the three studies, which are three different studies, it's kind of interesting that you took two negative studies and one borderline positive study and came up with a result that says that uh, the lavage group is doing better. I would. Then finally end by saying I think that the the um, DIVA arm of the uh, ladies' trial when that reports is going to be super interesting because and that's my bias, to be honest, is that if you're going to put a laparoscope in and do all this dissection like Matt showed in the video, although, again, you could argue what the appropriate technique is once you uh, put your scope in, I see no reason why a laparoscopic sigmoid resection uh, with a primary anastomosis Plus minus a diverting loop ileostomy. That's the study you really need because that's the, you know, the, what I would say is I don't say it's the standard of care, but certainly um, been shown to be an improvement uh, in care in multiple uh, retrospective studies now, and that's probably the, the next trial that we really need. So that's my total assessment. I look forward to uh, the rest of the debate. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, so maybe not quite as. Uh robust or rosy a picture as the uh, meta-analysis might uh, might portray. Well, if you look at your screens right now, we've got up an, our next question for the for the whole audience, for all participants. Do you believe that there is currently enough evidence to support selective use of lap lavage? We've heard a little uh, tidbit summary of kind of what the available evidence is. Um, for those of you participating, is this enough to convince you to use it, or is it enough to convince you not to use it, or do you still need more information? We'll give you a few minutes to kind of let those responses tally up. And so while everyone's responding to that also, if uh, if you look at the lower left corner of your screen, there should be a, a round button that says chat. And if you click on that, it'll open up the text chat function. Uh, and there's a box where you can send a question to the presenter. Uh, I'd also ask that you, if you called in from phone, you send me your phone number and your name in a text message so I can get your name down. And if you want to ask a question any time during the debate or towards the end, there's also a button that says raise hand. Just click on that button, and then we will call on you after the main debate. So let's go ahead to the results of our question. Oh, it's, it's about 50-50, but a little in favor of no, not enough evidence currently supports selective use, but, but almost 50% believe there is. So we'll go on to the next part of our debate then, Dave. 
Okay. Well, uh, I think a, a big part of this is probably patient selection. So I'm going to ask uh, uh, Tejal, how do you select appropriate patients for this technique? You're a believer. Who should get it? So I think, you know, um, basing patient selection criteria on just obviously this meta-analysis is a, is a little bit difficult uh, due to the heterogeneity of the studies and their inclusion criteria. You know, the Scandiv trial randomized patients before laparoscopy and included cases of diverticulitis regardless of their Hinchy grade. Um, both the uh, Dilala and the ladies trials distinguished purulent from fecal peritonitis and only enrolled patients with Hinchy grade 3 diverticulitis for laparoscopic lavage and uh, Hinchy grade 4 diverticulitis for resection. So randomization in these studies took place only after an initial diagnostic laparoscopy uh, had been performed to confirm the diagnosis and uh, to distinguish each patient's Hinchy grade. So that, you know, this 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 eons old general surgical acronym, if anyone, if anyone can recall, of the Hopi Indians being the stalwarts of operative indications has obviously fallen to the wayside. You know, the Hopi being the acronym for H hemorrhage, O obstruction, P perforation, I intractability. This is obviously in light of the explosion of the evidence-based practices, modern advanced techniques, and uh, uh, the advent of modern pharmaceuticals in the last 50 years. What we do know is that obviously, the Hartman procedure uh, is a morbid procedure that has its own long-term inherent risks, um, the things like you know, incisional hernia, small bowel obstruction, and of course uh, a colostomy, which, which will require a second major laparotomy for restoration of intestinal continuity. Uh, so based on this, I'm, I'm going to kind of suggest the following demographic to be uh, the most likely deduction for candidates for this approach based on the available data thus far. Now, without committing to age, um, relatively younger patients with few medical comorbidities presenting with radiographic evidence of perforated diverticulitis, including macroscopic pneumoperitoneum, or evidence of abscess not amendable to percutaneous drainage, could be the most ideal population to perform a laparoscopic lavage and drain placement. Now, I, I chose to describe this uh, in this fashion because it's, it's been argued that um, the intraoperative decision-making of whether to resect or not based on Hinchy is more susceptible to bias because Hinchy grading is not always so straightforward intra intraoperatively. Uh, the Scandis study, for example, is, is yet another example of like the difficulty of using the available studies we have thus far to conclude patient characteristics. So in that study, for example, uh, the patients that were not enrolled in the study had actually a numerically higher ASA score. And this was reflective of having uh, then more severe disease and the potential for worse postoperative outcomes. So Scandis results, for example, may not necessarily pertain to patients with perforated diverticulitis who are very ill, and that's why I kind of made the recommendations that I did. And obviously, uh, in the end, patients with absolute contraindications to laparoscopy obviously are to be excluded. Okay. Um, let's go to our next question. Um, for the audience members, uh, Tejal kind of give us a, a review of his patient selection. Let's ask uh, the participants here, which, uh, oh, sorry, different question here. Um, every good candidate for lap lavage deserves an attempt at this technique before committing to resection plus minus stoma. How would you rate your agreement with this statement? And we'll give some time for people to respond in. Um, I think a lot of this obviously depends on technique, and a lot of it depends on patient selection, and maybe those, maybe the devil is in the details for this uh, this procedure. And, and while we're waiting for the answers on that, I, I do want everyone to know the multi-talents of Christian Jones. 
who, who's debating and live tweeting at the same time <laughs> as, as my phone Twitter is blowing up with his continuous comments. <laughs> Dr. Jones is multi-talented, as we know. There you go. So, so actually, the majority, 40%, agree. Um, but there's about one third who disagree with that statement. But if you combine agree and strongly agree, it's it's almost 50% of the group. Okay. Well, Andrew, this leads it up to you. Then it looks like there's still half of the people participating who are not convinced that we should abandon this technique. So I'll I'll turn it over to you to say, tell us why you are not a believer and why you are not doing this in your practice. Well, uh, thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks for hosting it and for inviting me. And I want to congratulate Matt Martin again on a, a terrific series of, of trauma casts here. I think it's important uh, for me to say that uh, that in these these times where we've seen a fair bit of, of political and social turmoil, I think it's important that we express and exemplify tolerance here. So I want to say how much I respect my colleagues. Pagel and Christian, and respect their opinions, uh, no matter how misdirected they may be in, in this area of managing diverticulitis. <laughs> but I, I do think it's important that, that we remember our history, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because, uh, of course, if we don't, we are, are destined to repeat it. Remember that the go-to operation that we're talking about, the Hartman's-type operation, uh, was not was not the original go-to operation for diverticulitis. This became the go-to operation around the early 80s because the operation that we were doing before that, the operation described by Mayo, was found to be an inferior operation in that the, the mortality associated with that operation was higher. And what was that operation? That was, of course, laparotomy with lavage and then proximal fecal diversion then a period of time to allow the inflammation to subside, followed by a subsequent operation to reset, and then, of course, a third stage for stomal takedown. So, so to not reset or exteriorize the pathology was associated with, with a worse outcome. And that's how we ended up with the Hartman's type procedure. And I just wonder if, if there's a little bit of that biology we should remember as we think about a, a non-resective operation for, for diverticulitis. But you asked me why I don't do it, so so let me tell you what my few concerns are. I do feel like that the lap lavage has an unacceptably high failure rate. Anecdotes, anecdotes drive us, of course, so we're heavily driven by anecdotes, and I don't recall doing this before. I don't think I've actually done this procedure, but I've, I've seen cases that my group or folks outside have done, and in my experience is the patients just don't rally. Um, in the Lola trial, the, the operation was successful in only about half of the cases, and, and uh, as, as Kevin commented, Lola was terminated because of safety concerns in, in the Lavage group, and, and the authors admit that that, that trial wasn't, wasn't powered for non-inferiority. So I am concerned that, that there's an unacceptably uh, high failure rate, and, and the definition of failure is important here because depending on which trial you read, um, the, the end point of subsequent operation is defined differently. So subsequent operation in some trials would include stomal takedown, whereas in some trials, abscess drainage is considered 
subsequent operation or procedure. And those trials that don't consider abscess drainage in operation are obviously going to then be slanted towards lab lavage. But, but the high, high failure rate concerns me. And I think that when they fail, the, the, the process of failure is no small problem for the patient. Let's remember, when patients present with abscesses, these are not minor problems. They've, they've had a period of time where they, they haven't eaten well, they've sort of smoldered, had fever maybe for a week or 10 days or more as they've limped along with, with uh, the development of abscess after a, you know, an unsuccessful lavage procedure. So it's, it's not a small deal. I don't think we should think, well, you know, failed lavage, they get an abscess, we drain it later. I don't think that's insignificant. I appreciate Christian acknowledging my, uh, my age and, uh, you know, my, um, perhaps my experience. I do worry a little bit about, personally, my own laparoscopic skills. Um, I worry about, as, as Tejal touched on, I worried about I worry about failing to diagnose a hinge four where there's clearly a perforation that's not going to get better with with a lap lavage and and I wonder how often that might happen to me in the in the trials that have been discussed maybe a fourth or a third of these cases could actually be ones that are hinge four wouldn't be acceptable for this but but that I might miss that because my laparoscopic skills just aren't good enough to detect that so. I do worry about that. My next concern is that uh, sometimes you can't tell that this pathology is all diverticular. You know, my old Kentucky home is is a poor and not very health literate state, and there are some of these patients who present who have perforated uh, colorectal cancers. So, if I have a hard inflamed mass that I can get free from the sidewall. I'm going to take it out. I'm concerned about my patient population not returning for colonoscopy if I did a lap lavage and you know, potentially missed uh, a colorectal cancer, third most common cause of cancer death. I do worry about the comparator groups in these trials because uh, I think the best comparison here would be lap lavage compared to resection and anastomosis with no stoma which is the operation that I do. I do an open colectomy. I sew it right at the sacral promontory where the tenia have disappeared. I do a hand-sewn side-side, let the resident sew on the rectum. It's a great operation for them. No protective stoma in most cases. I resolve the problem with one operation with a very, very low recurrence rate, and uh, the patient goes home feeling well. So I'd, I'd like to see that comparison. I'd like to see black lavage, the colectomy, no stoma to take down later. I think that'd be a great comparison. There was a comment in, in one of the trials about the concern for uh, technical skill and the lack of technical skill contributing to lavage failure. And I touched on that a little bit with my laparoscopic skills. As acute care surgeons, I think the issue is a little bit bigger than that. I think we need to maintain the fundamental skill of performing colectomy in the context of inflammation and do that with good results. I, of course, would not suggest that we do that if there's a less morbid alternative. But having not proven that there's a less morbid alternative, in my mind, I think we should keep doing colectomy for diverticular disease and, and doing it well as acute care surgeons. I do think it's premature to meta-analyze. My count is just over 300 total patients in these meta-analyses, so 
I do think it's premature. And, and the last comment I'll make is about quality of life. You know, there are quality of life measures in a couple of these trials, and, and I think it's tough to say the quality of life is the same here uh, between the two groups because either group in these trials was going home with something they didn't want, either a drain or a stoma. I'd like to see, again, the population going home with no diverticulitis in their abdomen and no stoma and no drain. I think that'd be the best comparator group to look at the uh, quality of life. But, uh, but those are my thoughts about why I'm not doing it in my practice, Dave. Okay. Well, and thank you for potentially giving a, a great research question to an audience of uh, interested listeners, too. Thank you. Um, all right, well, let's go to the next question. If you look at your uh, screen, um, which patients would you consider a good candidate for lap lavage? And, again, you can collect, select multiple answers here. And as soon as we uh, get some feedback on that, then uh, we will go back to some more uh, rebuttals here from the from the pro side. So, so uh, we'll go ahead and skip to the results. And it looks like, overwhelmingly, people think Hinchy 3 is the patient to do this on, 80%. Uh, interesting, younger and healthy patient, 75% felt that was a good candidate versus elderly with significant comorbidities. Okay, well, still some room for debate, it sounds like. So let's go back to uh, Christian first, uh, give you time to uh, maybe rebut anything that's been said or add any other details that you think uh, support lap lavage. Thanks, Dave. The people have spoken. We have a beautiful uh, poll right there on our screen, and, and they're exactly right. These are the patients who benefit from this procedure. Um, as Matt noted, I've, uh, I've taken to Twitter and have been uh, talking about this a little bit there, too. The big point that comes up to rebut uh, the good Dr. Bernard um, and his outstanding and lengthy experience uh, is that, unfortunately, the plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, I've said it before, it's way easier to tweet about a meta-analysis than it is to actually perform one, so there's no question in my mind that uh, there are things that could be done better here in these uh, data collections and data analysis groups. The whole point of doing the meta-analysis this early on is to see if we're really going in the right direction. Uh, Dr. Schuster put out great data uh, regarding the concerns that everyone should have about this procedure, but the reason uh, uh, the study that was stopped early was stopped was for early reintervention in lap lavage patients. And again, it was stopped early and thus this is not a statistically significant finding. It's certainly not a statistically significant finding in this particular meta-analysis, though I'll admit they didn't look directly at that. Um, I will say, uh, before I hand over to my uh, partner, uh, Tejal, uh, I will say that there are patients who will not benefit from this. And I think our poll points out some of those. However, there are patients who will benefit. It's going to be successful in some people. It's going to get them out of the hospital sooner. It's going to get them out without ever having to have a stoma. And in the right selected patient, it's going to get them out without having a huge laparotomy scar. Okay. Tejal, 
So, you know, I think this is a very viable technique, but I think what at the core of all of this is going to be is trying to figure out who is the right patient that this would be meant for. You know, the uh, laparoscopic intervention first paradigm is, is not so different from current algorithms for contained diverticular abscesses, um, which are, are given more conservative treatments at first, like antibiotics, percutaneous drainage, bowel rest, and then surgery if the patient fails to improve. Um, you know, th there are added considerations for specifically laparoscopic uh, procedures, obviously, which include the morbidity of, of general anesthesia and the, uh, the physiological tolerance of induced pneumoperitoneum, for example. But the bottom line is that the, the incidence of diverticulitis, whether you can debate exactly, you know, how we've come up with this information based on new available data, but the increase, the incidence of diverticulitis has increased in the last decade, and it accounts for like almost 300,000 U.S. hospital admissions a year, and 1.8 billion dollars of annual direct medical costs. You know, and so I can, I foresee the suggested laparoscopic peritoneal lavage uh, to be more proposed as a damage-controlled operation to uh, contain contamination, give patients with acute perforation and a purulent peritonitis, a potential to bridge to an elective resection with primary anastomosis if the surgeon deems resection eventually necessary. You know, in most case series, the likelihood of recurrence was affected not by age at onset, but rather by the, uh, the, the severity of the initial episode. But after about two bouts of diverticulitis, though, the likelihood of re-recurrence may be modestly higher, but the severity of the attacks generally does not increase. Instead, most patients you know, the recurrent episodes will mimic their earlier uncomplicated ones. I would suggest that, you know, effective, the elective bowel resections themselves after medical optimization will carry a higher likelihood of decreasing costs, morbidity overall, as we know that emergency operations inherently carry higher risk than the average patient. So I think that it, the easiest way to swallow all the current available data is to suggest that we could potentially capture more patients away from the described complications associated with the colon resection without thinking about this particular uh, intervention as a panacea. Okay. Well, thank you. That's a great summary and great uh, argument for lap lavage. Uh, Kevin, let me turn it back over to you for rebuttal of the rebuttal. So I would say that I think all those are great points and that the problem then becomes who do you do this? There's clearly a subset of patients. I mean, some patients did well, clearly, based on laparoscopic lavage, or they wouldn't have been able to, you know, report data that suggests, you know, equivalence or maybe just slightly worse. Some people really do do well with laparoscopic lavage. The problem is the numbers seem like uh, since the preponderance of the data suggests that people have more reinterventions and more recurrent diverticulitis, that those, num those people that do well are less common, and if we can identify them exactly who they are, I have no doubt that I would support doing this operation in those patients. The challenge becomes in picking out who those patients are, and that's why until we can, I think I suggest that uh, an operation that ends their chances of ever, not necessarily ever, but nearly uh, a curative operation to remove the offending part of the colon and I totally agree with Andrew, a primary anastomosis plus minus a, an ileostomy is the operation of choice. I mean, an ileostomy reversal is, in my experience generally, you know, obviously there's a range, but, you know, patients generally go home post-update uh, two, sometimes even post-operative day number one. Um, it is a, truly, it is a re-intervention, and it is another general anesthetic. 
but it is a extremely straightforward, um, easy to do operation that patients do very well with. Um, so it's as opposed to a recurrent diverticulitis where you're sort of starting all over again. Um, and then the quality of life data that Andrew pointed out, I didn't even couldn't even really find it in all the studies, although they said they all did it. There was very little uh, discussion about that. And there's a, a pretty good-sized prospective randomized trial going on in France right now looking at elective resection and comparing that to ongoing medical management. And uh, as we've gotten away from this one, two uh, bouts of diverticulitis and then getting an elective operation, um, because a lot of these patients, they, I see them in my practice, they have, they don't want an operation, but, you know, they have chronic abdominal pain, um, and they have lots of uh, GI complaints, and these patients do so well in the elective setting, uh, all these uh, symptoms go away, and I really suspect this trial, although I wouldn't suggest it in the current uh, situation that we're in, that we'd be doing elective resections on one and two episodes of diverticulitis given the current environment, I think we're probably going to, the pendulum is going to start swinging back uh, when some of these trials come out that really look at the GI quality of life that these patients have. Okay, and uh, finally, Andrew, any uh, final comments before we open up for audience questions? I'd also uh, put in a plug, if you do have a question, go ahead, you can go ahead and submit now. We will uh, uh, call on you as we as we go, but if you want to submit your question now, go ahead and uh, send those to the uh, chairperson. Andrew, the floor is yours. David, I think the audience should consider the question of what failure rate of sepsis control they consider to be acceptable. Because in Lola, one of these trials discussed, control of sepsis only occurred in 75%. Is that an acceptable rate of sepsis control when sepsis is one of our number one enemies? That would be my first point. And the second point is I'll just leave you with this. I think at this point we can consider this operation, laparoscopic lavage, as simply surgical procrastination. It's going to end up out eventually. Might as well just do a good resective operation at the outset. Lower risk of failure. Okay. Shots fired, I think, there. Way to go, Andrew. Appreciate that. Uh, okay, now we're at the audience question portion, and again, uh, encourage you to submit questions if you have one. Uh, why don't we go first to uh, Rich Lesperance. Do you have a question for us? Yeah, uh, Rich Lesperance from San Antonio. Uh, I appreciate the discussion. My, my question for Dr. Schuster and Dr. Bernard, uh, how do they feel, do they feel this operation has a place for patients with lower grade disease, uh, Hinchy 1 or 2, that is not amenable to PERC drainage? Uh, and it, can we possibly look at this operation maybe as just a super version of IR drainage in those, you know, it's a little more invasive, uh, but even a little more definitive in those cases where interventional radiology can't uh, get the job done? Uh, I guess I would say that um, I think that's reasonable. I My concern is that I think after Hinchy uh, 1s and 2s, there is a also, what we know from somewhat long-term data, there's a relatively high, it's not 100%, it's 30 to 40% uh, recurrence of diverticulitis. The severity, um, as Jean was saying earlier, the severity does not necessarily um, dictate the future severity of your attack, but it does dictate the, the 
probability of a recurrent attack. So if you're going to go ahead and put a laparoscope in, I see, I just have, in my own practice at least, the, why not just take out that section of colon and do it laparoscopically, and certainly in a, in a hinchy one or two, you're not going to uh, do, I mean, it's very unlikely that you're even going to do a diverting stoma. You're just going to do a primary anastomosis, and that patient's probably cured. So that would be my personal bias. So I think if you're going to, you know, want to do something minimal, you might, and you can do a percutaneous drain. I think that's certainly obviously optimal, uh, less uh, impact on the patient. Um, but if you're going to go to the operating room, I think we should make the effort to cure the patient. I agree with Kevin. I think that you could think about it uh, like that as an alternative to the patients who, who didn't have a, a view for IR. It goes back to that original concern that they, they, they haven't, in my experience, seemed to get better, so why not just proceed with a resective operation? So once you get them through that complicated inflammatory diverticular disease episode with IR drainage, for example, and they cycle back to the office, you're going to be you're going to be highly motivated to perform a resective operation. So I tend to agree with Kevin. I think I would probably go for it and just do the resective operation. But it's certainly an alternative in those patients who, who uh, you know, might be drainable by IR if they had an access point. Um, Matt, any other questions from the audience? Yeah, yeah. for Christian and to, to Dahl. So when you, when you do this procedure, give us your technical tips. On, on how you do it, because some people say break up the adhesions and look for the hole. Some people say don't touch the adhesions, leave everything up. Uh, so, so what do you think are the technical tips for doing a successful lavage? I can go first. You know, <clears throat> uh, some of, some of, the, uh, some of the, the key elements that I think are really important <clears throat> to emphasize, obviously, is that this is delicate, friable tissue. I think mobilizing uh, the sigmoid colon in many instances, off of the lateral wall um, can potentially work against what the body's already trying to do. In most instances, um, I'm taking the patient to the operating room after reviewing radiographic imaging, and that will give me a sense if there's actually a loculation that I need to break up in that area. If there is nothing in that area specifically that is loculated, I will leave that area alone. I think the body is trying to do what it needs to do, and uh, my, my goal, obviously, is to help the body do what it's trying to do. Obviously, given the setting that I have optimally selected this patient, this patient fits within my personal criteria, I think, of what somebody should look like if they're going to receive this procedure. You know, this is kind of a little bit analogous to the whole grand patch repair where, you know, we, we, the momentum's trying to fix the problem and then we take it off, take a look at the hole and then sew it back onto the, sew the patch onto the hole. Um, and so my, I'm, my goal is to support the body uh, and what it's trying to do. Now, obviously, there are going to be instances in which patients arrive that the situation is going to be there's, it's disastrous. There's a giant hole. You can see mucosa. That's not obviously going to be the kind of patient that you're going to want to potentially entertain this inter this type of intervention for. But I think one of the key things, at least for me, is to leave well enough alone if I don't believe there's something down there that I'm going to actually break open and free up. And, and I'll uh, clearly agree with that. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll entirely agree with that. Um, you know, one of the big problems that all of this data suffers from is that there is a heterogeneity also in how the procedure is performed. Matt, the video that you showed us at the beginning uh, of this discussion, you know, has them uh, breaking things up, has them finding a hole and then closing it laparoscopically. Again, while I'm not by any means suggesting that that's not ever appropriate, um, it's not what we would do if it were an open case. Uh, and, again, I would never look for a hole. Um, if I find one, I'm probably going to convert to a resection. Uh, if uh, we have a contained abscess that I'm uh, doing a lap lavage on because the uh, uh, interventional radiologists were unable to drain it, then that's the one instance in which I might break up some of those loculations. But otherwise, exactly as Tejal said, um, I will let the body continue to do what the body is intending to do. And Kevin and Andrew, any comments on that? Uh, I, I'll answer, I guess. I think it was, uh, I agree in the sense that if you're going to, um, if you're doing this uh, with the intended purpose of just you know, getting the patient through, I think to expose the hole and like as Christian was exactly saying, I totally agree that you know if you're gonna you want you want the body to do what it's gonna do. If you found that patient that is gonna do well with this procedure, it's the one that whose body's already taking care of it, and so you should let it continue to happen. If I have this operation, I want one of those two guys to do it. <laughs> <laughs> if I were gonna have it. <laughs> Yeah, but if you do it on Andrew, give him a stoma anyway. <laughs> so so we have a, a texted question, and this is for Christian. So so you reviewed this meta-analysis, uh, but the question says there was another meta-analysis published that reviewed the exact same papers and came to the opposite conclusion, <laughs> that, that lap lavage had an increase in complications. So, yeah. so what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, this is one of the big problems that I have. I knew there were going to be people in the audience who actually read the literature, and that's obviously the biggest uh, drawback here. Um, believe it or not, there are actually three meta-analyses that all came out within about a month of uh, one another. Um, this one came out in, I don't remember exactly, International Journal of Colorectal Disease or something uh, to that effect. Um, there was one that came out the same month in Annals of Surgery, and then there was one that came out in the World Journal of Surgery. All three of the meta-analyses ended up uh, finding, of course, the same three randomized controlled trials. They had slightly different outcomes that they were looking for. And, of course, the methodologies were slightly different. Um, but they did have different uh, uh, outcomes that, that they found that were important as well. The big difference with the other two meta-analyses is that they weren't looking at 12-month outcomes. They were looking at 30- and 90-day outcomes. And in early reoperations, uh, laparoscopic lavage won out. Now, if you look at the uh, statistical analysis that's done and the forest plots that are done with the uh, meta-analysis that we're citing here, the uh, Anganiti uh, et al., um, which I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of, uh, if you look at that one, it, then there's a trend toward a higher 30-day, but there's not a statistical significance on a 30-day reoperation rate. There's no question in my mind that there are patients who we're going to do this on at some point 
who then go on to need a reoperation and need a colon resection. There's going to be times when we're too aggressive about attempting a non-operative or a, I should say a non-open approach. And we wash them out and they don't get better. The inflammation uh, uh, doesn't die down. They continue to have leakage of uh, stool from a hole that we did not see laparoscopically, and they're going to need a real resection. Now, the reason that I say that's okay to happen is, again, only based on patient criteria. If that's not a possibility, if that's not something someone will tolerate, then they need to have their colon taken out on that first operation. This is similar to the patient who's in septic shock. I wouldn't do a laparoscopic lavage on them, not just because I'm limiting the, their venous return with the laparoscopic insufflation, but because they can't take a second hit. They can't take a delay. But to be honest, I entirely agree with Dr. Bernard's comments about surgical procrastination. But that's the same thing we very easily could say about placing drains. And, and in fact, when I was in residency, it, it was commented that this is just putting off the inevitable, putting drains into patients with uh, localized uh, uh, abscess. So my biggest concern is, once again, patient procrastination and choosing the patient that can tolerate an attempt at laparoscopic lavage, knowing that there is the possibility it'll fail. Okay. So um, I just have one quick question. Uh, I'll ask for a one-word answer from each of, uh, each of our speakers, yes or no. If you, were, if you were the patient in the ER with Hinchy 3 diverticulitis, would you want an attempt to be made at lap lavage and drain placement? Christian? Nope. Hazel? Uh, yes, please. Kevin? Uh, please take out my colon and put my the two ends back together again. <laughs> and Andrew? <laughs> no. Uh, Matt, how about you? Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll buy a decent amount of morbidity to avoid a stoma. But, but I, I agree with the comment of put me back together if you can, but unfortunately, in most settings, you're going to end up with a stoma. You're getting emergency surgery for diverticulitis today. And I think me personally, I think I'd agree with Matt. I think uh, I'd, I'd like the chance to fail at least once. So anyway, interesting, very interesting discussion. I'd like to thank uh, all of our speakers today for the work that you've put into this and the preparation. And it's been a very stimulating discussion. Um, we have one final question now for the audience. Um, based on our discussion today and what you've heard, pros and cons, for and against, um, will your practice change based on the current available evidence in today's discussion? So. Uh, Answers are varied. I now use it and I'll continue. I now use it and I won't, or I'm going to start, or I don't want to start. Uh, select one of those and we'll we'll uh, see how everybody feels. And again, a big thanks to uh, all the people who participated today, and uh, have, we've all benefited from your comments and from your from your thoughts about this. So appreciate that. Okay, and looks like. Uh... We have about 30% who are maybe changing their mind and considering starting to use it, 30% who use it and will still use it, and then uh, a few few people who don't plan to use it and still unsure. So, so, so at least I think at the end of the debate, I think you helped some people make some decisions. Okay. Well, uh, thanks again to everybody who's uh, participated. We hope it's been informative and it's been beneficial. Uh, thank you for all for supporting uh, the East uh, online education section and these uh, uh, town hall debates. I think they're an interesting format and very uh, 
I, I very much enjoy the interactive back and forth. So thank you all uh, very much for joining. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.